0: Welcome to House of Cards. Dave Weishato with you here, deep from the swamps of Jersey. we got a great show coming up for you. I love books about the gambling industry, and I just read one that's an incredible look at how casinos handle security and collect debts from their customers who are a little reluctant to pay their bills. The name of the book is Joe's Dash from Million Dollar Drug Busts to Multi-Million Dollar Collections for Las Vegas Casinos. The book is the story about Joe Dorsey, who rose through the ranks of the San Diego Police Department, then moved to Vegas to handle security and debt collection for some of the biggest casinos in the world. And we are lucky to have the subject of this great book as a guest this week. After this break, Joe Dorsey's coming on and telling us some of his incredible stories from the gambling world. So stick around. We'll be right back with House of Cards. Hey, this is D.Y. Shadow from House of Cards. With your House of Cards, give me a report for the week of August 7th, 2023. Pennsylvania reported new state gambling revenue records during the 2022-2023 fiscal year. Total gambling revenue in that time period reached $5.5 billion, which beat the previous record of $5.04 billion set in 2021-2022 fiscal year. Online casinos exceeded $1 billion in yearly revenue, and sports betting reached a record revenue mark of $492 million. Betmakers announced a deal with Penn Entertainment. Under the agreement, Hollywood Casino at Penn National Racecourse will be added to the Monmouth Bets app, which will offer fixed odds on those horse races. Betmakers anticipates other Penn National races will be added to the Monmouth Bets app in the future. The Monmouth Bets app offers fixed odds on horse races and is available only in New Jersey. And finally, there are always jackpots being won in Las Vegas. But last month, two $1 million jackpots were hit at Harry Reid International Airport. The first jackpot hit at Terminal 1 when a lucky visitor was playing a Wheel of Fortune machine and won over $1.3 million. The second jackpot was won in Terminal 3 on another Wheel of Fortune machine. This time, the lucky visitor won over $1.2 million. Next time I go to Vegas, I'm going to hang out at the airport any news or tips regarding casinos, gaming, or legislation, send us an email at newsroom at houseofcardsradio.com and follow us on Twitter at HSC Radio. The House of Cards Gaming Report is brought to you by Drizzly, your online liquor store. Available in over 95 cities across North America, Drizzly offers a huge selection and competitive pricing with the side of personalized content. Now there's no need to leave the house. Get alcohol delivered in less than an hour by Drizzly. Head on over to drizzly.com and order today. And now get $5 off your first order of $20 or more when using our promo code DRINK19 at checkout. Shop beer, wine, and liquor with Drizzly.com. Spectrum Gaming rides again with the return of the Racing and Gaming Conference at Saratoga this August 14th through the 16th at the Saratoga Hilton in Saratoga Springs, New York. The Racing and Gaming Conference at Saratoga is the premier national forum for industry decision-makers, advocates, and patrons to discuss and analyze gaming trends in all sectors of the industry. Over 50 experts on more than a dozen panels, all meeting for three days to examine the critical issues facing the gaming industry and share their ideas and insights. Register today at RacingAndGamingSaratoga.com to reserve your seat. And be sure and check out the website for full agenda and conference speaker list. The Racing and Gaming Conference at Saratoga this August 14th through the 16th at the Saratoga Hilton in Saratoga Springs, New York. Register today at RacingAndGamingSaratoga.com. You're listening to the House of Cards. You lose track
1: of time in those casinos. There's no windows. There's no clocks. And you never walk away from the table when you're on a heater.
0: Welcome back to House of Cards. Dave Weishauptle with you. I'm excited to talk to our next guest because he is the subject of an incredible book I just read. The name of the book is called Joe's Dash, From Million Dollar Drug Busts to Multi-Million Dollar Collections for Las Vegas Casinos. And it's all about Joe Dorsey, from his rise as a San Diego police officer to working with some of the biggest casino properties in the world. And to tell us all about his life and his book, Joe Dorsey is on the line with us right now. Joe, thanks for coming on.
2: Well, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: I got to tell you, I really love Joe's Dash. It, it gives you an insight on some of the casino business that no one really gets to see. I, how did this project come about?
2: Well, the project came about, uh, my wife was been after me for many years as other people to write a book. I really wasn't interested until Karen met Linda Ellis, who uh, mm-hmm. wrote the famous poem called The Dash. And uh, Linda... Talked to me and said, you know, about 10 years ago about doing a book. And I, nah, I really don't want to do it. And uh, so I got sick for about three years. I was, you know, on life support three times. And my poor wife, she went through it all. And Linda came back to town. And Linda said, look it, I'll do the book for you. And I'm thinking, well, you know... I'll let you know. And then my wife came to me that night. And she says, you're going to take Linda up on writing the book with you? And uh, I said, well, you know, and it, 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 as I can do sometimes. I was hemming and hawing. And uh, <laughs> she looked looked up at me and said, would you do it for me? Well, you know what happened after that. Oh, absolutely. I got a book. <laughs> I got a book. So that's basically how it started.
0: Like I said, it's an incredible book, and, and, it, it, and it details your absolute incredible life. I mean, you grew up as far away from the glitter of the Las Vegas Strip as you can get. What, what was it like growing up where you grew up in Cleveland?
2: Well, I grew up in projects. I mean, you know, it was a large Catholic family. You know, there were eight kids, my parents and grandmother, living in public housing. And uh, that I believe it had, if I can remember, had three room, three bedrooms. But uh, we eventually finally got out of the projects and ended up, uh, my dad bought a house out in the suburbs. And uh, when I was 11, my father passed away. And my mother began drinking heavily. And uh, next thing I know, we're back in the project. So I was in the projects, and uh, she had a serious problem. She would disappear for days. And I had three siblings, and I was the oldest, at 11 and 12. And uh, there were times when she, you know, she would be gone, and we didn't have food. We didn't have anything. My older sister, Mary Jo, stopped one day. And uh, I can recall it, you know, just like it was yesterday. It was on a Friday night. She looked around, and she started checking refrigerators and cupboards, and, you know, the cupboards were better. Mm. So that was it. Her and my older sister took us, Mary Jo and my sister took myself and my younger sister, and the two younger boy and girl, Tim and Julianne, were taken by our older sister, Betty. And it was a life-saving moment. Mm -hmm. for that to happen, because uh, I was being supported by, you know, trying to get food on the table uh, from a friend of mine who was a burglar. Oh, wow. He saw how destitute we were. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he'd stop by, you need money, kid. And, uh, of course, I took it. So got out of there, got back living with my sister in a regimented home with, you know, regular... Duties uh, and as, as a kid, you know, you got chores and stuff. And sure. I grew up with them and ended up um, at the eighteen, going into the service. Went into the Navy, mm-hmm. and of course, it was about five below zero in <laughs> Cleveland. And I got to the, I got to the recruiter, and he said, "Where well, would you like to go to boot camp?" And that surprised me. And I said, uh, uh, "What do you got?" And he said, "I have." Uh, Great Lakes. Well, I know that's Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, just like Chicago out here. And he says, how about San Diego? And I knew. I didn't know where it was, basically, in California. But I knew it didn't snow there. Yeah. And uh, so off I went. Boot camped there. Got stationed at the Naval Air Station across the bay, North Island, and uh, ended up... Uh, having a a great time in the military. I think everybody should spend some time in the military. You're in a war. You know, got promoted and did things Mm -hmm. and uh, basically got out. Uh, In fact, I was in Japan when President Kennedy was killed. And uh, it was remarkable the response from the Japanese people. Got out of the Navy. Got a letter from the Army telling me to come to the recruiter's office, which time I went down and Asked him what this is about, and he says, well, with your MOS, which is your job code number, on those secret helicopters, he said, uh, we're going to make you a warrant officer and uh, let you fly Hueys. And this is in 1964. Now, I had been through the Far East and met some intelligence guys that told me about the problems with Vietnam, and they were coming. They were going to happen. And so I knew that I didn't want to fly. He was in the Army yeah. with what, what was coming. Yeah, so yeah. Coast Guard recruiter was there. He said, look, we're getting those same helicopters. We have nobody in, in the Coast Guard knows anything about these things. They'll be trained, of course. And uh, But uh, what's it going to take to get you? And I basically said, you know, I'm at the same rank. I want guaranteed flight pay. Which was a big deal, yeah. And four years in San Diego, and that's what happened. And in the Coast Guard it was probably the most rewarding job I ever.
0: Okay, hold that thought. We're going to take a quick break. See you on the other side.
1: Some surprises are good, some surprises are life-changing, and some surprises can be financially devastating. That's why you need 210 Home Buyers Warranty. 210 Homebuyer's Warranty covers critical systems like your heating, cooling, and water heater and appliances like your fridge from breakdowns caused by routine use. Because something will break down right when you need it most. A refrigerator breakdown can cost over $1,200 to replace. With 210 as little as $85. Water heater breakdown nearly $1,800. With 210 as little as $85. AC breakdown $2,500. With 210 as little as $85.
0: I enjoy knowing that any issues I may have with my home will be taken care of.
1: Every. Thing was handled professionally.
2: The response and service is always timely and professional.
1: No matter the age of your home or appliances, a home warranty service agreement from 210 Home Buyers Warranty can help reduce your financial stress. Call 800-683-1116. 800-683-1116. 800-683-1116. Call now to get two months free.
0: You're listening to House of Cards. Check out our website at houseofcardsradio.com. Welcome back to House of Cards. Dave Weishaddle with you. This portion of House of Cards is brought to you by SCCG Management, delivering technology-driven capability expertise and customer and business value to the gaming industry for over 30 years. For more information, go to sccgmanagement.com. For those of you just joining us, I am talking with Joe Dorsey, the subject of the book Joe's Dash, from million-dollar drug busts to multi-million-dollar collections for the Las Vegas casinos. You really seem to find a home in San Diego. I mean, after the, your Coast Guard, it led you to a job in law enforcement. What, what did you do in law enforcement?
2: Well, and of course, like everybody else, I went to you know through the police academy, came out, and I worked uniform for four years. Uh, part of that time in uniform, I was assigned to a, an organization that San Diego Police Department, the only police department in the country had. Was called a secondary school task force. I was, there was one of 16 officers, two man teams were assigned. We had two high schools and two junior highs. That our job was just to go to those schools, give talks, handle any policing problems there. And when I first went, to be honest with you, I thought, man, I don't want to go out and babysit a bunch <laughs> of kids. You know, I did. Yeah. I mean, that's how I felt. But I got there, and you have to understand, after working the streets for three years, you get pretty cynical. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I got there and started to meet these kids, and they understood what I was doing. I understood what they were doing. And the thing that probably pushed me over the top, and this was in nineteen seventy 1970, nineteen seventy two, 1972, I think. But anyway... We 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 put classes together, and we spoke at them, and they could ask us anything they wanted, and we'd be honest with them. And uh, we uh, asked, how many people in here want to legalize marijuana? And I was shocked when it was probably 90% of the kids didn't want it legalized. Really? And I thought, these kids are pretty smart. Yeah. So the the thing that happened with these kids is they began to trust us. They started bringing things to us. And if they brought them to a teacher, the teacher would have to identify who brought it to them. Mm -hmm. We didn't. We didn't have to do it. So these problems you see today in these schools with the shootings and everything, it has one common denominator. The kids knew about it. Mm -hmm. They knew that these guys were making threats. They knew they were doing this and that. So, uh, i got promoted detective out of there and uh, i went to burglary people the uh, uh, petty thefts breaking into your house things like that mm-hmm. crimes against uh, property and then i was assigned to uh, the narcotics unit uh, which surprised me <laughs> uh and from. Uh, <laughs> Narcotics unit, uh, the police department's unit was just underfunded like crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could, we had to borrow things from other agencies to get the job done. But San Diego had a, it was a pretty smart chief of police that thought, let's put the sheriffs and the cops together, narcotics. Mm-hmm. And then we'll, you know, we'll quit spinning our wheels, doing the same cases. And then when DEA was formed in 73, DEA, decided they wanted to be part of this, and they wanted to fund it, which was great for us. Because when I was with the police department, we never got paid overtime. Mm -hmm. We only got compensatory time. And under federal law, they had to pay us time and a half. And, uh, I mean, to us, it was like, you know, dying and going to heaven. And we got brand-new undercover cars every year, state-of-the-art radios, uh, the facilities we had, we had everybody you can think of that was in the task force, from ATF, U.S. Marshals, United States Attorney's Office, some of the small towns in California were in it, and it, it ballooned up to 55-man operation. Uh, I met my partner in narcotics when I went to narcotics. I had forgotten that I'd met him before on an operation when he was with SEAL teams and mm-hmm. I was in the Coast Guard. And uh, he remembered it. And being the two new guys, we were partners and we excelled. I mean, we really excelled at uh, narcotic enforcement. We, we were canceling cases. We got an award one year for a class one violator with the Drug Enforcement Administration is the top guy. Mm-hmm. You can't get hired him. And we got called in one time, and the chief of police was there, the sheriff, and the regional director from DEA. And I'm thinking, what did my partner do? (laughs) (laughs) So so anyway, we ended up uh, getting an award for, in a nine-month period, we arrested six class one violators.
0: I got to tell you, I I read the book, and you had some pretty interesting uh, drug cases right. that you were involved with in and some, and, and some pretty dangerous situations. But the one that stuck right. out to me was the guy that actually drove up to the police station and showed you the amount of pot <laughs> in his car. <laughs> I mean, yeah. b- back right, out, right after I graduated law school, I, I worked in the DA's office in Boston, and I would love a case like you? that. But was that your best day ever on the job?
2: Yeah, that was one of. I thought it was. <laughs> see, if you were with San Diego PD, one one week a year, you had to go down to the station and test dope that was recovered by the patrol, the uniform
0: uh-huh. guys,
2: and to make sure, it, you know, it is so you could take the complaint over to the DA and file it. The phone rang, and I was. It was my week, and the guy said, "Hey, you know, I heard about this. Did uh, uh, the, the Mexicans?" Are they spraying marijuana with Paraquat? And I said, yes, they are. And he says, well, you know, how can I get it tested? I said, well, <laughs> we test it. <laughs> and, the, and the guy says, you do? I said, sure. I said, just come on down to the police station at, you know, Market and the Pacific Coast Highway and go to the business office up front and tell the officer you want me. And I I thought it was one of my guys from the task force playing a joke on me, yeah,
0: yeah, no that so, was uh,
2: too good to be true. yeah, the guy shows up, <laughs> and you know I'm, we're talking in the office, and there's a uniform guy there and and he's talking, and I says, Well, yeah, we can do it Where's your, where's your stuff? Where's your marijuana? And I expected him reach in his pocket pull out a baggie of weed, and he says, Come on, and I told the uniform, Come out along, I don't know what this is about." And uh kid popped the trunk, and I think there were 30 kilos of marijuana <laughs> in the trunk. So I arrested him. And he said, this is entrapment. And I said, nah, look at your fuck <laughs> right in front of us. I said, San Diego Police Department. I said, come on, don't even go there. But I did, you know, you being a, a, a deputy DA, you go to issuing, and I'm sure it's the same all over the country. Sure. The new guy gets issuing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's who you get. You get the new guys; you're learning. So I took it to the guy, and he wouldn't. He he wasn't going to issue it. <laughs> he said, "No, that can't be right." And one one of the senior DAs came in, and he he told him that, "No, nah, I suggest you issue it." <laughs> so he issued it. Another time that I think was one of the one of one of my best is, well, there were two other times. The the one time is when I. Uh, The Border Patrol caught a guy up on Interstate 5 north of San Diego, and the guy had, uh, I think he had 120 or 150 kilos of weed in the trunk. And I was a duty agent, so I had to go up and process him and process the dope. And the story he told about being in the movie business and, and working with special effects He pulled this con on his drug dealer that he had had for many years. He couldn't pay for the drug, so they robbed the guy. What happened is I convinced the guy that I'd cut him loose if he returned the dope to the dope dealer that he bought it from down in San Diego. And he gave me the guy's name, and the guy was a class one violator. Now, I'm thinking, do I care about this 150 kilos or the guy... Who I know is a heavy-duty dealer. So I rehearsed him all night. He called the guy that went to my boss in the morning as I was up all night. And said, "Look, I got this deal, and here's what I want to do." He said, "Are you crazy?" He says, "We're in the business of seasoned dope, not giving it back." <laughs> and I says, "Listen to me. Here's the guy who he buy it, who he robbed. Took it to the bosses, and they came out and they put some conditions on." But anyway, as a long story short. We had him give him the dope, and it's out in the beach area of San Diego, had him give the dealer the dope, apologize for what happened, and uh, we followed the guy back to his place. But it got a little hairy. We lost mm-hmm. him just before. We didn't know where he was going, and we lost, we had an airplane up and a surveillance team, and we lost him. But a few minutes later, they found him getting out of the car in a rural area, and we ended up seizing uh, a 1,000 pounds of marijuana, an unusual heavy-duty amount of cocaine, and thousands of dollars in cash.
0: We'll be right back with House of Cards.
1: Some people like knocking boots. How to do. While others get lucky. And some just get it on no matter how you do it or what you call it Adam and Eve makes your whoopee hot with 50% off almost any one sexy item just enter offer code boots 2 at checkout and get 50% off plus 10 free gifts including free shipping first get busy with a gift for you Ooh. shake the sheets with something exciting for them and hit a home run with a third item you'll both enjoy sounds like someone hit the sweet spot plus six free bonus gifts that will make you say, bow-chicka-wow-wow. Adam and Eve is tapping that offer. Oh, yeah. With 50% off and 10 free gifts, including free shipping. Use offer code B-O-O-T-S-2 at adamandeve.com now. That's offer code Boots2. Boots2 at adamandeve.com. Some surprises are good, some surprises are life-changing, and some surprises can be financially devastating. That's why you need 210 Home Buyers Warranty. 210 Home Buyers Warranty covers critical systems like your heating, cooling, and water heater and appliances like your fridge from breakdowns caused by routine use because something will break down right when you need it most. A refrigerator breakdown can cost over $1,200 to replace with 210 as little as $85. Water heater breakdown nearly $1,800 with 210 as little as $85. AC breakdown $2,500, with 210 as little as $85.
0: I enjoy knowing that any issues I may have with my home will be taken care of.
1: Everything was handled professionally.
2: The response and service is always timely and professional.
1: No matter the age of your home or appliances, a home warranty service agreement from 210 Home Buyers Warranty can help reduce your financial stress. Call 800-683-1116. 800-683-1116. 800-683-1116. Call now to get two months free.
0: You're listening to the House of Cards.
1: Well, don't take it too hard. I've done a lot of stupid things in my life, too. Stupid? What do you mean, stupid?
0: Welcome back to House of Cards. Dave Weishadow with you. For those of you just joining us, I am talking with Joe Dorsey, the subject of the book Joe's Dash, from million-dollar drug busts to multi-million-dollar collections for the Las Vegas casinos. When I ask you about your move to the Nevada Gaming Control Board in the 1980s, right. you, you started working mm-hmm. there. How, how did you make that move? How did a law enforcement officer in San Diego get involved with the Nevada Gaming Control Board?
2: Well, they I was working robbery after narcotics and i had an agent from the gaming control board come in and i was the only guy in the office and he was doing a background on a guy from san diego who was trying to get a gaming license and uh he didn't know what to do so i said come on i'll take you down we went to records and we did everything for him and and um, I was asking, well, you know, what do you guys do? And you know, they travel worldwide and they do all this stuff, and they don't need search warrants and they don't need to deal with judges. And um, so he mentioned that he had a this guy had lived in a foreign country, and uh, I said, you got somebody to help you with that? And he said, no. So I called my contact in that foreign country and got him the information he needed. And he went back and told his boss. He said they got this guy in San Diego, and it was working narcotics with all these DEA guys, ATF, all of these guys. Uh, I had contacts worldwide, so they made me a job offer. My wife was a singer, mm-hmm. and she was, in fact, she signed a contract with the MGM on the same day that I started with the Nevada Gaming Control Board. <laughs> San Diego didn't pay well in those days and going to the gaming control board, I got a $5,000 a year raise and another raise because there were no state income tax. So, uh, it was, a I I enjoyed it. I mean, I went
0: every. What were your duties at the Nevada gaming control board?
2: Well, I was an agent investigations mm-hmm. division, the license division, uh, doing, uh, background investigations on applicants whether they be junket reps who have to be licensed or people on the board of directors and or the the, the, the actual owners of the casinos and you, you would investigate people that had association with the mob back then and uh, uh but you would go you would investigate back about 25 years so you would go go out and go to the cities where they lived and, and go to the colleges where they said they graduated from, which is another story. Then I'd come back and write a comprehensive report for the gaming control board members to make a decision on whether to approve them or not to. And then from there, it would go to the gaming commission where they had the final say so whether the guy got licensed or not.
0: You know, I, I was struck yeah. by the amount of traveling you had to do for the uh, gaming control board. And and oh. in fact, in the book, you said you were just returning home from an investigation you were doing in Australia when you were offered right. the job of director of security at the Hilton Corporation. Was it a difficult right. decision to leave the Nevada Gaming Control Board and go take a job at Hilton?
2: Not really. <laughs> uh you know, I, I really didn't know about A friend of mine knew about the job there. In fact, I got him a job at the gaming board. Mm-hmm. The gaming board, it, you know, it was... In those days, it was... Con- it, I had five chiefs in five years. You know, the turnover rate, wow. usually you get a chief for 20 years. Yeah. A board. I was concerned about the future, and but I knew that gaming would expand in Las Vegas. I had no doubts in my mind. And when... Uh, I heard of the Hilton and I told him I was interested and I was interviewed by uh, Henry Lewin and Barron, you know, just took off from there. Then I joined up with Dennis Gomes and I'm sure some of your listeners back in the East Coast know who Dennis Gomes is Uh, and what a great boss he was. Uh, You know, people don't realize that Dennis Gomes was in the movie Casino. he was the one that stirred up, found the information about all the skimming going on. Mm -hmm. And uh, when he was with the gaming control board, he wasn't there when I was there. He left a year before I got there, but what an incredible boss. He knew, I knew what I was doing at the Hilton. And he stole me away when he got, uh, hired at the Aladdin. Mm -hmm. He said, look, you can, whatever you want. I'll give it to you, but I want you to come with me. And, uh, we did, and I took some of the people from the Hilton with me, and uh, it was a short-lived. It was the first uh, Japanese owner of a casino in Las Vegas. He really didn't understand. He thought, you know, if you open the doors, there's going to be money pouring in every day. Mm-hmm. didn't realize it really had to work to get those customers in.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: So uh, we kind of, Dennis fell out of favor with them, and we weren't too concerned about it because the Gaming Control Board wanted us to be in there mm-hmm. because Dennis's history with the board, mine, we, they felt comfortable there wasn't going to be any funny business going on if we were in there. So, but we informed them they're the first people we informed we were leaving. Uh, we're going to the Dunes to another Japanese owner. The owner he, he was a gambler himself, and we had. A bunch of customers come in playing Bach, big, big players. Twelve million dollars we had access to that we were with play. That you know we possibly could have won. And he comes down and he's talking to all the players because he knows them. Mm-hmm. They're Japanese too. And uh, what's he do? He takes them, takes the players down to the dunes and lets them win the twelve million so <laughs> he could sit with them and play with them. Now, that's kind of stupid.
0: Yeah, real stupid.
2: We got into the dunes and the dunes was a mess. You know, the dunes have always been a mess. Uh, nobody put any money in it and stuff like that. And uh, we started bringing in some big players and we started doing okay. And then the process of getting things done with the Japanese is difficult. Casinos, you make a decision right now. You know, <laughs> am I going to give this guy a million dollars in credit or am I going to do this, do that? That's immediate. With the Japanese, it would have to go to a committee in Japan. By the time you got the information back, the guy's dead. Yeah. And uh, Steve Wynn knew he was, uh, Dennis formed a company called Clark Management, and there were about six of us in it. And Steve Wynn was just finishing up the Mirage, and he knew that 90% of his staff was going to leave the Golden Nugget. The Golden Nugget was a nice property. So he hired Dennis and we all went down there to the Golden Nugget and, uh, you know, through the transition of people going to the Mirage. Mm -hmm. That's when I first got into the collection business.
0: Yeah, I, I want to ask you about your collection work in a little bit, but I, I want to ask you, uh, talk, talk about shady dealings. You, when you started working for the Tropicana, you discovered some scams oh. and stealing from the casino that was actually being done by the staff. Can you
2: explain oh.
0: what was going on with the staff at the Tropicana that you found out about?
2: Yeah, uh, De- Dennis went to work at Dodge Mahal, came back, and I was working for International Game Technology back then as the director of corporate security, so... I know Dennis is going to call me. I know he's going to call me and want me to come back because the traps have been notorious for crooks. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the owners were Bob guys for years. He calls, we cut a deal. I, uh, I go over there in the first 15 minutes. I went down to the marketing VP who was a friend of mine. He's part of Dennis's crew. And I said, bring up some play on on the crap game, and he did, and, and I said, stop right there, look at that, I said, they got a guy betting $250 a hand, and he's being, we're going from the ratings, $250 a hand for 18 hours, and my response was, he better be in a wheelchair, because I don't know anybody who can do that and uh, reviewed the surveillance tape because I was over surveillance there and over security, and found out that there was nobody on the game. The game was closed most of the time. So what I found is they had a rating scam going on, and it was the pit bosses. What they would do is they would add a guy as a customer and get him a, a, a card that he can swipe for, you know, his play, his ratings, but what they were doing is they were putting in phony names, running the cards through the games to build up the ratings. For these guys would be RFB, room, food, and beverage, and some of them were airfare. Cool. They were so big, Wow. and they were selling those cards and the names to people for about six, seven hundred bucks. And they come in and they they could stay as long as they wanted, and you know got comp rooms, comp beverage, comp shows. Some even got comp air. But it was all it was all phony people. There were no, These people weren't real. That's the first thing I found. And the second thing is that in the slot areas, well, back in the, back, excuse me, let me get back to the casino. Then you had the dealers, uh, especially the crap dealers. The crap dealers were hustling the hell out of the customers. What I mean by hustling, they're saying, "Hey, bet for us, you know, do this, do that." Yeah, yeah. bet for the boys. It's, it's called a hard hustle, mm-hmm. you know. And so I, I set up a test. I brought a guy in who knew craps. I says, "You don't do anything, what they tell you to do." And I gave him a thousand dollars, and I said, "Go down and play." And he went down and played. Did everything they did, and in an hour, we shut the game down. The actual game had $48 dropped in the box in an hour, and then we went in the tip box, and it was $460 in the tip box because they were hustling him so hard. He was doing everything they said. So that that was another problem. They were driving customers away. Met with them, said, look, you know, the fun's over. This is it. You start dealing regular like you should be dealing. You'd be bringing in quality players, and those players are going to take care of you. You're running people out of the place. In fact, I had a saying that I wanted to put a poster by the business, by the uh, where they check in to go to work, time time office. Quit stealing. The mob went home. (laughs) And and, uh, so I grabbed a bunch of them. Then I got into the slot department. There was another false rating crap going on in there. Then we had internal theft from others in the slot department. I had a lady, this is my favorite one. I was on a collection trip, came back and my surveillance director, and I brought all these directors of mine in, Mm -hmm. you know, to take care care of the place when I was gone. Said, look, we got some suspicious activity in, in the main coin booth. And that's where they stored all the bags of the silver dollars for the slot machines. When they were running low, a floor person would be called, he'd come over sign for a bag of 500 coins and go put them in a slot machine. Well, the one guy went up and he started to leave with the, with the bag in his hand. He said, wait a minute, this thing's light. And uh, he reported to the surveillance director. We set up cameras on the woman. She was on vacation when she came back. We saw her messing with the bags. I said, that's enough, get her in here. So we got her in, started interviewing her. And uh, she was an elderly woman -hmm. And she, I said, look at here's the deal. I don't have time for this. I mean, I I got all kinds of fires going on. I said, you tell me who's involved with you and how you're getting into those bags to remove that coin, and I won't charge you. I won't have you prosecuted. I won't even tell the gaming authorities. She was reluctant, and I told her, I said, man, I, I, you know, I've made deals like this my whole life in law enforcement so being honest with you i'm not lying but you got witnesses here and so because i needed to know how those seals were getting out those bags because mm-hmm. the other employees who worked the booth probably know it too she explained that on the older bags you could spin the seal off and then spin it back on so at the end there i said okay you're terminated i'm keeping my deal with you and i said All right. i said how much did you normally take? She had, I think she had about 250 bucks on her when we grabbed her. She was halfway through the ship. She says about $450. And I said, uh, every day? She says, yeah, every day. Wow. And I said, I asked her, I said, how long have you been doing this? She said, 11 years. Wow. Unbelievable. So she had, she had taken over a million dollars. And, uh, of course, I got to deal with that. And plus, I'm new there. I wasn't there when all this was transpiring. And they have audit units and people that are supposed to take care of that. All I wanted to do was stop it now. So uh, I lived up to my end of the bargain.
0: We'll be right back with House of Cards.
1: Attention. has ever offered. Call 800-353-2174. 800-353-2174. One Stop Tax Relief has resolved thousands of cases since 2014 and saved clients millions of dollars. Call now for a free consultation. Get the IRS off your back. Call 800-353-2174. 800-353-2174. One Stop Tax Relief shop!
0: For more than 30 years, SCCG management has set a standard of excellence unmatched in the global gaming industry. From startups to established companies, SCCG Management and its team of experienced leaders help each of their clients navigate the ever-changing, fast-moving business of gaming in all its forms. Sports betting, iGaming, eSports, casino technology, SCCG Management provides a global network to connect its clients with the right strategic partners for growth on a global scale. SCCG also works with entrepreneurs, providing capital and resources to assist in the development of new and innovative products and platforms whether you're looking to enter the u.s market expand your reach to other parts of the world or establish your business in the global gaming industry look to sccg management for the guidance you need sccgmanagement.com expert solutions for strategic success You're listening to House of Cards. You are more in need of a night in Atlantic City than any man I've ever met. I'd say
2: sit down at a table, go for dinner, see a show, take a walk on the boardwalk and smell the salt air.
0: But if you're anything like me, nothing after sit down at a table is going to happen. Welcome back to House of Cards, Dave Weishaddle with you. For those of you just joining us, I am talking with Joe Dorsey, the subject of the book Joe's Dash, from million-dollar drug busts to multi-million-dollar collections for the Las Vegas casinos. One of the most interesting roles that you had with casinos was collecting outstanding debts from customers. I mean, I, I, for me, I think I was looking at it, and one of the most challenging things I was thinking of when collecting debts— from other countries is the laws and the culture. I mean, some of the countries that you had to go to, it was illegal for you to try and get debts from a casino from a customer. And also you had yeah. to deal with the culture in which you know the different ways of thinking. I mean, one of the guys wouldn't pay you because he wanted to get written apologies from casino executives. Are those are the two most important things to understand when you're collecting yes. for a casino, the laws and the culture?
2: Yes, it is. Yeah, number one, the laws are what dictate what you can do, and or you're going to end up in a jailhouse over there eating rice and fish heads. <laughs> and you don't want that. Trust me. And, and the, the culture, I was fortunate. All my buddies from DEA have been up and promoted, and they were all over Southeast Asia, all over Asia. And so if I needed assistance for, uh, say, you know, I'm going over there collecting million, million dollars and, and these cops over there, they make $1,400 a year. The, my DEA buddies, they hooked me up with the, uh, you know, the higher command guys in the national police usually. And uh, they would assign guys to me. But the DEA guys would educate me on the culture.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I'll tell you what, the person that educated me on the Japanese culture in Japan, was an active member working for the U.S. government who went to work for General MacArthur when he went in to manage the Japanese country after World War II in 1945. So this person was just... I knew everything about Japanese people. And uh, you take that knowledge. And then, But the one thing you don't do is you don't want to go out and be a thug. Mm-hmm. And so you got to pay. Because they don't I happened to start in 1988. It's when the economy collapsed in Japan. And all these guys were... They were all players before, and they paid. And, you know, that they, they were millionaires. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be millionaires again. So I don't want to alienate them. I want them to come back. But I'm going to give them the best way to pay us back. And uh, it worked. Mm-hmm. Except in, in one case, <laughs> one <laughs> yeah. guy... He was just a real, he owed a half a million bucks. He, he, he You know, they put up a half a million mm-hmm. and then they get the half a million in credit. So I go to him and he's a real schmuck. I mean, this guy, it was my fault. I wasn't even there <laughs> when he lost the money. But how can it be my fault? And finally I said to him, I said, okay, here's how it's going to work. And I took that at 1099 form. And I said, you owe us. But this 1099 form here says that we're going to forgive $100,000 of that debt. And we're going to, of course, the rest of these forms, one will go to us, one will go to the United States IRS, and the other one will go to the Japanese tax authority. At that time, there was a guy by the name of Mizuno who owned a country club here in Las Vegas. The Japanese authorities grabbed him on a tax problem. He went to jail for two years before they even heard the case. I explained that to this guy and he you could see his mind going <laughs> and, and he's going, Oh man, not only do I have to explain the half a million, I gotta explain where I got the five hundred thousand to get the half a million. You know, to the tax authority. He says, Well can we can we make a deal that I I, I only pay the four hundred? I said, no, we're not doing that. We had to do a lot of traveling and back and forth to get this. You know, and uh, he paid the half a million.
0: Wow. How dangerous yeah. was your job? I mean, I remember a story from the book <laughs> that you received a bag full of cash from a casino customer to settle their debt in the same room of a restaurant where there were Japanese organized crime members. I mean, how potentially yeah. dangerous were these collection trips that you made?
2: Well, they they... It it really depended uh, on, you know, the country. uh, But in Japan, I knew the customers very well, most of them. Uh, Here's one of the. I'll give you that before I tell you about that organized crime. I had a guy who was devastated by the collapse of the economy in Japan. Honorable guy. Used to come every quarter and gamble a million bucks. I went to him realized that, you know, he this guy can't pay. And I've got people that can check on his assets and stuff. And, and I said, do what you can when you can, okay? You know, something like five years later, that guy called me up. I wasn't even working at the casino anymore. And he called me up and said, uh, I've got that $500,000. I said, okay, let me call the casino and set you up with somebody and you can settle your debt. And that's, you had people like that. I mean, you don't want to strong learn people like that. So the story you're talking about, I had a lawyer with me because I had just settled a big debt in Hong Kong. Usually I didn't take lawyers. It was my way or the highway. I meet the guy. He owns a bunch of clubs in the Ginza, which is world famous for being expensive. And he's a nice guy. I know the guy. I'm, selected from him before. And I meet him in a section. He owed 300 grand. And I I met him in a section of his place that wasn't open yet. But you could see the bar and everything else going on. So I got the lawyer with me and he's new. he didn't know anything about this stuff. So I went in and a customer came up. Brown shopping bag that you get in any store in the country. And he plops it on the table and he starts taking out three hundred thousand dollars in u.s currency and i said whoa hold it i said you don't have to count. i'm not counting that put it back in the bag i said i've been dealing with you for years i said you trust me i'm gonna go home and fedex your markers back you know he says yeah no problem and i said good well at that time a guy walked in in a suit There was about five other guys with him in suits the customer that I was with runs over there, and he meets him and sits him down, and they're sitting talking, and I can tell they're talking. I don't miss much because of my working undercover. I know everything that's going on around me. So I'm looking over and I'm watching this guy, and you can see he's telling the guy that came in in the suit who we are. So they're doing their thing and all that, and and. I said okay let's go to the lawyer he says i'm gonna go over and say goodbye to the customer i said don't go near the customer i said stay away from him so we get up and i see the the guy that's with the, the customer and i see him you know motion one of his guys and now we're walking down this alleyway with a 300 grand in cash and, and i know that you know i know who the guy was the guy I believe was the head of the Yakuza for Tokyo. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I know that there ain't going to be a crime within five miles of the head of the Yakuza in Tokyo. (laughs) So we're pretty safe going out there. And we got uh, to the cab, put him in, and I turned, and he sent one of his bodyguards to follow us out to make sure we were all right. And I knew he was there, and but the lawyer he didn't notice him, and uh, you know I bowed and thanked him and he did the same and off we go to the hotel with a bag full of cash Hmm. and and the lawyer is saying why why didn't you want me to meet him I said that guy looked like could be the head of the Yakuza you go over there and want to shake his hand get your picture taken I said your ganging days are over pal (laughs) and who who would take the pictures I said you don't know who's following this guy around I said come on and uh, so he was He was really excited. Well, then we're walking down the alley with all this money. Yeah, Nobody's going to bother us. Yakuza guy was looking up for us or whoever that guy was. I don't know whether he was in the Yakuza or not. And uh, so he went through. He says, you do this all the time? And I says, yeah. He says, can you do it? And I said, very carefully. <laughs> let me tell you. And <laughs> he, he, uh, he was a mess, but he never asked. A question. He never asked a question.
0: Now, you were traveling what? a lot for your job and it seems like you were always yeah. in Asia, even though you don't like Asian food, which by the way was the funniest part of your book. But, but and by sure. the way, if you certainly pick up Joe's dash and read for the raccoon story. I'm just going to leave it at that. It's going to, it's a, oh. a tease for the readers. Perfect. But you must have a yeah. very supportive wife with uh, all your oh. travels and things like that. Tell me about your family.
2: Well, it's just right now it's myself and Karen I have two children from another marriage and uh, they live in California and they're in their 50s now and uh, they're both doing exceptionally well career-wise and um, they couldn't wait to read the book because they heard all the stories before <laughs> <laughs> they want to see which ones are left out. and uh, but there's just Karen Karen right today after Karen was a singer Mm-hmm. And she did a USO tour back in 1969 at Southeast Asia, and she performed all over Atlantic City. She was at the Flare uh, Edge, and she was at the is it Resorts International you have there? Yep. She sang there for a few years. Uh, she loved singing in Atlantic City. She said the the response from the customers or their people that go to see him is incredible. She mm-hmm. says it's just totally. It was like doing a U.S.O. tour, you know. Those those guys over in Southeast they hadn't seen a girl in a year, so you know they're going to stand on their head applauding and stuff. So, but she got tired of the travel. So when she was singing at Caesars, she quit, mm-hmm. went to work over at the at the uh, Hilton and VIP services mm-hmm. in Gomes. When we left there, he took he told me he says we're taking care of him. With us. I said, Yeah. He said she's going to be the director of VIP services. And then from there at the doing, she was the director of entertainment. But uh, she left there and went to work for a small place called Ellis Island Casino out here in Las Vegas. It's a local place. Well, it used to be. Not anymore. And uh, went to work for Gary Ellis when he first bought uh, the place from his father. It was a small place. had 15 slot machines and a restaurant. And now they have something like 20... 24 village pub restaurants throughout the uh, Las Vegas area and Ellis Island. And they're all doing exceptionally well. And Gary Ellis invented a uh, system for slot tracking or called, uh, called marker tracks. And it's going to be huge. Trust me. It's going to go through the roof. And... Uh, so when Karen went to work for him, he was just a small place, and she's been with him 32 years and expanded it all his business to what it is today, and eventually became the president of the company. Now his three daughters have all graduated from colleges in California, and they're in there, and and Karen right now is just basically an assistant to Gary, and the girls are running the property.
0: Joe, we don't have a lot of time left, but how can people get a copy of Joe's Dash from million-dollar drug bust to multi-million-dollar collections for Las Vegas casinos? Would Amazon be the best place to get it?
2: Amazon is the best place. You can go to B. Dalton and places, but they're just going to order it for you. Okay. Or they can go to the publishing company. Huntington Press,
0: Las Vegas.
2: That's right. <laughs> good old Anthony Curtis. Yep. He's going to hate me for that one. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's <good. laughs>
0: you got his name in on the interview so he should be happy about
2: it oh yeah it's uh he's a great guy oh, i yeah. mean you talk about guys he got it knows everything about gaming especially games mm-hmm. this guy's it this guy he is the hero of that pal and uh but anyway that's where they can get it and uh hopefully they will go out and buy it it's uh, a lot of people have you know, the result, the reviews coming back are incredible. And that's not from family members. These are from people <laughs> I don't even know. So.
0: Joe Dorsey, author of Joe's Dash, from million-dollar drug busts and multimillion-dollar collections for Las Vegas casinos. Thanks for coming on and talking about the book and your life. It's an amazing story, and I urge everyone out there to pick up a copy of Joe's Dash. Thanks for talking with us about it.
2: I appreciate all your help, Dave, and uh, Doug also. So I hopefully uh, may be talking to you again. I hope
0: so. Well, that'll do it for us this week. I'll see you next time on House of Cards.